Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Paulina Jaramillo, Professor of Engineering in Public Policy and Co-Director of the Green Design Institute in the College of Engineering at Carnegie Mellon. We have a really interesting discussion in this episode because unlike some other guests, Dr. Jaramillo's research focuses on energy needs and modeling in some parts of the developing world, specifically in places like Africa. We talk a lot about the roots of how Dr. Jaramillo got into this work, the types of projects that her and her students take on, the criteria they use to determine which are the right projects to pursue, how they measure success, and and also how their work and work in, in academic research in general ties into the broader climate fight. I think this is a great one, and I hope you enjoy. Dr. Jaramillo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. I'm excited for this one. You you bring a very different perspective than we've represented previously onto the show, and I think it's a really important one, and, and that's the, the implications of climate change in developing countries and, and other parts of the world outside of the U.S. and outside of the West. Exactly. Yeah, so my work, I have a long history of working on energy and climate change issues. Mostly I focused, like for the first years of my career, my research career, I focused on North America. And then for the last couple of years, I've been looking more at the global South and particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. How did you make that transition? Why did you make that transition? It'd be great to get some color on, on how all of this came about. There's a little bit of serendipity there. So, but I'll provide more details. I'm originally from Colombia. So I've always been interested in the global South developing country issues. I just had a, an opportunity to really um, work in that area. And, you know, there's like, we're in an academic setting, there's funding constraints and publishing papers. So, so all of my funding had come on for work focused in the U.S. Because that's where the funding was, because that's what people were interested in funding. Right, because that's what I did my PhD on. And that's just, I mean, there were a lot of important issues here, um, and I've lived in the U.S. for more than half my life already, so that just made sense, and there were a lot of interesting research problems, and I continue to pursue research on U.S.-focused energy climate problems. But then about five years, six years ago, I had an application for a Ph.D. student that really just wanted to focus on Africa, uh, on energy and Africa. And so he was an excellent PhD applicant, American, but had spent a lot of time in Sub-Saharan Africa with the Peace Corps and then doing a master's in South Africa and working in South Africa. Um, And he was a really good student and just fortune, um, serendipity, luck, something. I had funding, I had um, uh, discretionary funding that I could use to fund this student. And so to work on Africa. And so he came He's been, he started working on these. It turns out that around that time, we were also ramping up. The, so CMU has a campus in Rwanda where we offer two master's degree programs, one in electrical and computer engineering and one in information technologies. And so when we started, when, I, when the student came in and we started looking at these, that's also around the same t- time that the CMU Africa program was ramping up and growing. So that also gave us an opportunity to have a footing on in the continent, what was going on. And then through his work and thinking about these issues, I kind of realized that what happens in Africa um, as they develop their energy system will be critical to mitigation, global mitigation and stabilization efforts. So climate change is a, it's a, maybe not, it's a, it's a complex problem, right? It's a global problem and it needs global engagement. One single country will not solve the climate crisis. So the U.S. could eliminate, we could eliminate all of our, redu- all of our emissions of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. But if the rest of the world just continue as they are or increase their emissions, it doesn't happen. 
it doesn't matter what we do. Similarly, I realized that we can, the US and North America and, and, Nor and Europe can do everything right. And if we don't pay attention to what happens of Af on Africa, then we're gonna be in trouble also. And so less, less attention has been paid to Africa because it's their contribution, their historical contribution to greenhouse gas emissions has been low. Their annual greenhouse gas emissions are currently relatively low. And so all of the concern has been on the large emitting countries. So North America, Europe, China, and India, there's a lot of work going on on China and India because they're massive population and their emissions have grown so rapidly over the last 30 years that there's a lot of attention on that, much less on Africa. But Africa will have 2.5 billion people by 2050. They will all need energy and they are seriously energy constrained right now. I spent a year in Rwanda, which is a country of 12 million people, and their installed capacity for power generation is 250 megawatts, uh, which is the size of a small natural gas power plant in the US for 12 million people. So to meet the demands for 2.5 billion people, they're gonna need to expand their energy system very rapidly. It's a large effort. And if they go on a carbon intensive energy development pathway, it doesn't happen what we do. It doesn't matter what we do in the US, their emissions are gonna surpass what we emit on a, on a year. So that was very eye-opening to me that realization and the realization that we're just not paying attention. Like the, the energy and climate research community isn't really focused that much on Africa. And so I felt that there are all these opportunities then for me to engage in this research. I got a really good student. I had some, some discretionary funding. CMU has a program in Africa. We're training African students. There's a need. So I decided to kind of transition most of my research into issues related to Africa and other developing countries. I, I'm doing also a little bit of work in South America, but primarily Africa. And when you say you, what percentage of the overall work that you're overseeing is actually you doing the research versus PhD students or fellows or, or others that are kind of working with your guidance and tutelage? The actual research is done by PhD students. I currently have 11 PhD students in my research group that I supervise or co-supervise with other faculty. About at least half of them are working on developing country issues. And so we come up initially, a lot of the ideas come from me as a transition, as the graduate students move through their career and they're, by the time they're third year, fourth year PhD students, they're the ones that are driving most of the research questions they're looking into. And my job is kind of guide the research. We meet weekly or bi-weekly and I just make, we make plans to what they're working on and we review what they've done. And I provide, I, I often can say, this is great, it looks great, everything seems to be working in your models, all of these make sense, let's think about what the implications of your results are. Or I can say, something is not looking right. We need to figure, you need to figure out what's going on behind in all your modeling so we can make sense of these results. And then a lot of my work is finding funding for all of these PhD students. So applying, uh, writing proposals, uh, writing research proposals to submit to the National Science Foundation or um, the, or foundations or whatever opportunities I can find for applying for funding. And that's, that's funding essentially to cover their living while they're in the program? That, so the way that at Carnegie Mellon, this might be slightly different at some other universities, but uh, I am responsible for funding. PhD students have to pay tuition to Carnegie Mellon University. No PhD, I would never let a PhD student of mine to pay tuition out of their own pocket. So my job, my responsibility when I commit to fund, to take on a student is that I will fund their tuition. Um, so cover the tuition that has to go to Carnegie Mellon and cover as an annual stipend for living. And does any of that funding ever come from the private sector? Do you consider foundations private sector? I don't know. Yeah, I was I was thinking more industry, but you tell me. 
So within Carnegie Mellon, there it's a big re, like it's a it's a research university. There's a lot of researchers. I think there are several research groups that have a lot of funding from industry. I have not personally had funding from industry. I'm a system modeler. I look at like the big picture of a social problem. There's just not. I just have never been very successful at, at identifying companies willing to fund these. Work. Well, it's not. It doesn't sound like it's directly correlated with with industry making more profits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> My, it, it, which which is actually not in any way a judgment on how important the work is. And in many cases, the the most important work is work that has nothing to do with helping companies to, to make more profits. But but the challenge is that the easiest work to fund is the work that's most correlated with, with padding the pockets of the organizations who are writing the checks, at least in the private sector. Yeah, I mean, and it depends on the field. I, yeah, but, but the system level social program, problems research... I mean, sometimes there are like there might be opportunities for, for for private sector that for corporate responsibility. I mean, I think there could be avenues. I just haven't identified them. I guess there's three areas I'd I'd love to dig into, and I've never tried to lay out three areas at once. So maybe this is getting too complicated. But one is just the criteria that you use when assessing what makes a good project for for one of your PhDs. Uh, another one is some example projects. And then a third is just how those dots connect from the work that you do to actually making a difference on the problem. So I wanted to add something about industry. We have, we have been working with industry in Sub-Saharan Africa. These are small startup companies trying to develop solutions for the energy problem in Africa. So they're not in a position to fund research, but they've been very generous in sharing data with us and just providing guidance to some of our data analyses and our, like my students have been able to want to visit some of the sites they've been working on. So that relationship with these in, in, in with these companies has worked out. So now why, why if the startups are the ones that are resource constrained and at most risk of, of not making it, uh, there, are they more generous with their time than the big organizations with so much more resource and stability? Because they are trying to build a business model in a very... Um, so these are mostly mini-grid developers. So these are small utilities trying to provide electricity services to rural communities, which are very poor. And so they are trying to make a business model out of serving the poorest uh, people. And they are collecting a lot of data about their customers, about their electricity consumption patterns, and they just don't have the in-house capabilities to analyze all of that data, which is what we can do. And so um, I think they have realized the value in working with us to get, help them learn more about their customers, their systems, things, because they're on a day-by-day operating their business and trying to like solve any problems with their systems. Like if there's a technical problem with the systems, they have to fix it, customer service, all of these things. They're under resource constraint. Um, I think the value we provide and that they have realized is that we can help them with all of these data analyses and more of like understanding better some of the context in which they work. These are also companies that, I mean, they're operating in sub-Saharan Africa in very serving poor conditions. So these are already companies that have some, like have a sense of social responsibility, right? And they're like by their nature. And so I maybe that also contributes to their willingness to help with us or to work with us. Great. And anything else you wanted to add there or should we talk about some of the example projects? Uh, yeah, we can talk about the other things. So uh, your first thing was what makes a good problem to work? Yeah, if a student comes to you and says, here's what I'm thinking of working on, what criteria do you, do you have a mental checklist of how to assess if the project is a good fit for the program? So I, I don't have a, like a very structured process for figuring that out. We're, I'm in a department called Engineering and Public Policy. So we're in the College of Engineering. We're a very unique department uh, where we're, I'm, a, I'm a civil engineer by training. Most of my colleagues are also engineers, although we do have some um, economists and so decision scientists working with like that are faculty in the department. 
But most of our students come from technical backgrounds and are interested in using that technical background to work on problems that are important to to the public. And so most of it, we don't do, even though our name engineering on public policy, we do not design public policy. We, most of my work, um, the output can be useful to inform public policy. And so we are working on technical, like my, my technical problems. And my focus is energy and climate sustainability. So it has to be a problem based on climate and energy sustainability. Typically, when a student first arrives, it's very rare that they have a clear idea of what, like, this is the project we're going to do and this is it. Typically, it's, I have an idea, we discuss it, and they start working on it, and we refine it as they move along. So their first project is typically informed by something else I've been doing, and I find that there's a different, like, a, an opportunity to find a new answer. It's typically just... I had a student that looked at something and then we realized we don't know how this may work in these other contexts. Or for for example, so for example, I have a student currently, he's work he's from Nigeria. He's currently working at looking at the at the technical at the economic feasibility and the environmental benefits of deploying rooftop solar PV systems with batteries in urban settings in Nigeria. And like, I don't know, maybe you have a rooftop solar system. I have a rooftop solar system. This is pretty common um, in, in, growingly common in the US. In Nigeria, where they have very uh, constrained power system and people suffer a lot of outages, what people do is they go and buy backup diesel generators. And this is actually a problem, not just in Nigeria, in many sub-Saharan countries and in many developing countries in, in, in Asia as well. And so I had had a student, I had at one point thought, we were looking at power, at air quality. So this is the thought process that went there. I had colleagues working on air quality. We realized air quality is a massive problem in sub-Saharan Africa. I know I lived in, in Rwanda for a year and I realized that whenever the power goes off, all of these diesel backup generators kick in. I know but that backup diesel generators are very polluting, both in terms of climate and but, but also of pollutants that affect local air quality. And so I had a student that also spent some time in Rwanda with me, and we realized no one has really quantified what would be, what are the emissions associated with these backup generators in sub-Saharan Africa. And there is very little data. It turns out there's very little data about it. But he started doing some modeling work and simulation work, and we came up with a we published a paper on these are the like the emissions from these backup diesel generators are very large. All of the focus on renewables and electricity access has been on people that don't have a connection. So there's a lot of investments. We should also be looking at the people that have a connection, but then have to rely on these backup generators for half of the time of the year. And the, these are costly. So we published that paper. And then my student from Nigeria, who's familiar with the context thought, well, can we look at what options are there for replacing those backup diesel generators? And so we thought, well, why not solar PV rooftop in your house with a battery or without a battery or a hybrid system where you also have some diesel but mostly rely on the on the solar. So he's been looking at what are the economic viability for households in these settings to provide to use these systems to reduce their diesel consumption and then what are the emission benefits of that. So that was kind of it always happens like that and my PhD student, when I was a PhD student, I was always surprised at how easy my advisor came up with ideas. I thought, like, I, like how do you come up with all of these ideas? I, I'm never going to get to that point. And I think my students feel a little bit like that. How are they, like, they, when, like when they're going through, like, how, how, if I decide to pursue an academic career, how am I going to come up with all of these research ideas? And my answer is, the more you work on it, there's always a new question. You'll do some work and a new question will come up. New, like either there's a problem that 
it's tangential to the work you're currently doing and so you can't pursue it right now or follow-up work to what you did that you did all these analyses and at the end you think well why don't we also look at this other thing and so you my PhD the PhD student that was working on that project he may be done she may be done they're moving on they can do the follow-up so then another student can come in and do the follow-up but yeah so I don't have like a structured checklist of what to work on there's all everything every time we come up with an idea with a student the first thing we do is do a literature review to see if anyone else has looked at the problem what has been done in the area to, to see where we can make a contribution. When you're going into these projects, are there clear success metrics or uh, things that you're striving for in terms of the result coming out the other side? So in academia, like the easiest metric of success is did we publish a paper, right? That's the easiest. Or did a student finish, successfully complete his PhD, her PhD, right? That's also a metric of success. Those are the easy metrics of success that we can track. I think the, I mean, the reason I do this work is my hope is that I can actually influence what's going on outside of the university. And we have seen some, we have had, it, we don't collect this. We're not, like, we're not very good at collecting the data to support um, the evidence of our impact outside of the university. But we have had case, cases, so we do have a lot of outreach to policymakers. And so a couple of years ago, I managed a project to look at renewable integration of wind, so integration of wind and solar into the U.S. grid. And at that time, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission put out a proposed rulemaking, and all of those rulemakings are open for public comments. So we submitted public comments based on our research. And the commission actually, uh, when they when they revised the, the rule, they took into consideration our comments. So we've also done congressional hearings. So I've been I've been to Congress when I would like for work related to the U.S. I've been to Congress and done like staff staffer briefings or briefings at the Department of Energy. In Africa, we are particularly in Rwanda, we are. Um, well connected with the utility and so we're trying to do analysis that is useful to the utility and we're sharing our results with them. We've been working with the mini-grid developers uh, for example and doing a lot of data um, analytics to understand how demand for electricity evolves in these newly electrified communities and and what how does that demand growth affect the viability of these systems operating and how do so so again, the mini-grid developers have been very generous in, in sharing the data with, the, with us. And what in return, we've been providing all the models, all the information uh, we've, we've, we've come up with, we've shared it, and they have included some of the, the models we developed in their process, in their design process. Because of my, the other way I can see an impact is because of my research background and my history, I'm now involved in writing the next assessment report, the IPCC's sixth assessment report for climate change. So that is another, and I wouldn't be like an author in this if I didn't have been doing all this research all these years. So that's exciting, exciting because now I'm going to be involved in these. There's, I'm in working group three, there's maybe roughly 150 co-authors for that report, for working three, group three, which is the mitigation report from all over the world. And so I'm working with researchers from all over the world to produce the report, the report that is basically gonna update the state of the knowledge about climate mitigation, which ultimately does inform the, the negotiating, the climate negotiating agreement and all of that. So if you take a step back and look not so much at what's going on in your lab, but just academia in general, as it relates to climate change and and climate change research, do you feel like academia, if you look in this point in time, is fulfilling its full potential in terms of the impact it can have on helping with the climate crisis? And if if not, where is the biggest opportunity for it to play a bigger role than it's playing today? 
Yeah, so I think the I think research and not just academic research, not just at universities, but also at national labs and everything we know about climate change has been a result of research. Uh, most of it at universities and national labs. So all that knowledge is there because there are people, very smart people, smarter than me, the climate scientists, smarter than me, that are working on these issues and identifying solutions. Now, the, the, the challenge is we, we do the research, we put the research out there, we can communicate it, we try to talk, like we do outreach, we present our research to policymakers, decision makers, but ultimately it is the decision makers and the political process the one that takes that information and does something without with it. There is, I think, a discussion going on in the academic, in the scientific community about the role of scientists in advocacy, especially around climate change. And I think that's a complex discussion. I mean, because we are scientists, we want to be objective, but this is also a crisis and we're also private citizens. So like that balance. And you have seen... So very, like very renowned scientists that are now very engaged in the advocacy for climate change. Um, and I think, I think the other, the big challenge also, I think for academia. So I think the knowledge, the creation of all the knowledge about climate, a lot of the fundamental research that enables companies to then commercialize techno- energy technologies happens in universities and research labs. So that that is very, like that knowledge is being created at universities. There's the question of what to do regarding for advocacy. I also think a big challenge for scientists, not just climate or energy scientists, just scientists in general, is communication. So, and there's a lot of growing interest in science communication and how to improve science communication. How do we improve communication about uncertainty, right? So. There's actually, I'll send it to you, there's something called PhD comics, which is these comics that are based on like experiences of PhD students. And there's one about the cycle, they had this cartoon about this cycle of communication of research and how like you find something and then the, the, the press, the PR offices put something out there and then this press outlet put something out there that is slightly different until it gets to the consumer and it's like a totally different message to what you started right so we start where scientists are cautious right we're very cautious about trying to so with climate specifically this has been very challenged there's uncertainty about climate impacts right these are very complex models there is uncertainty but we know enough that we have been able to at least quantify the knowable uncertainty and then somehow over the last 20 years what has come out at the other end of this communication cycle is that there's too much uncertainty, we really don't know what's gonna happen. And that's not really true, which has, I think, personally, I think has led to some of the inaction, right? There's too much uncertainty, there's nothing we can do about it. And that's not really true. There's uncertainty, but there's uncertainty in everything in life, and we still make decisions on our daily lives, on our private life. So I think there is still a big opportunity for improved science communication, and that involves scientists themselves learning and better engaging in the communication of the science. Yeah, it seems like at least at the federal level in in this country that there's an intentional breeding of distrust of of science, uh, maybe to protect large and well-funded incumbents that that are active political donors or or other reasons. But is that a U.S.-specific phenomenon, or, or do you see that happening in other parts of the world as well? I think the motivations are different. This is a complex problem, right? So in the U.S., there's, there's, well, there's all the political rhetoric around climate, but in other countries, the challenge with policy making around climate are all are maybe are slightly different, but are still political, right? So in a country in Sub-Saharan Africa where people like seventy percent of the population lives from subsistence farming, there's no water infrastructure. There's no energy, right? And you're a politician elected and have to make decisions with limited resources about what you're going to invest. Climate is probably at the bottom of your list. This is a long-term problem. 
you're, you're getting elected, you want to invest in projects that are like the results are tangible within the next election cycle, right? So I don't know that the rhetoric around climate or energy in other places, I mean, there's evidence to suggest there's similar things happening in Europe as, as, as in the US, not as severe, but there are some very conservative parties in Europe that have become more outspoken about climate skepticism. Again, not as severe as in the US, but Australia, I think, has also observed some of these trends. So I, I don't necessarily think it's unique in the US. It's just to a different level right now. When you think about climate change and then you think about what you were just addressing around energy poverty, for example, how do you think about the prioritization or the interrelation of, of those two things where on the one hand, we have this carbon budget, and if we don't get it under control and get to net zero emissions as quickly as possible, then the planet will be less and less inhabitable by human life. But on the other hand, it's already borderline uninhabitable for a large group of people here and now today. So where if they had access to energy, then, you know, with energy comes abundance and, and higher quality of life, at least as we, you know, as, as we've defined it historically. Yeah, so this is a very complex equity issue, right? How do I tell the poorest person in the world that they shouldn't use coal because it's gonna it's a bad bad uh, energy source for climate, but it's the cheapest for them, right? Like, how do you do that? It's, there's a big ethical question there. I think my sense is that this is, but the, on the other hand, as a global community, we have to do something about it, like. If we are going to do something, like, we have no choice but to figure out how to do the, how to meet this dual objective of providing energy without destroying the climate, right? Providing energy for the poorest people in the world without destroying the climate. We just, there's no, like that's, we have to do it. We may not do it, but to solve the crisis, we have to do it. And so I think that is where international commitments are going to come in because our, like, Developing countries, some developing countries are very resource constrained and do not have the investment capacity to address some of these issues. And I think so that's where the climate negotiations are going to have to come in. And how are we going to finance climate mitigation in these rapidly growing countries that require a lot of energy? Primarily, it sounds like the role of you and, and your students is to help better understand where we are and the implications if different things happen, but not necessarily modeling out the impact that certain solutions can have. Is, is that right? Or are you focused on solutions as well? Well, no, we, I am looking at some, uh, so for example, the 1.5 Celsius report that the IPCC put to get put out last year, it's what do we need to do to come up with 1.5 to stabilize the climate 1.5. They develop, they use the integrated assessment models and they come up with, we need to eliminate global emission, carbon emissions by 2100, I mean, or 2050, like something really radical. That's eliminate the current emissions. That doesn't even talk about avoiding future emissions. And so with one of my PhD students, what we're trying to build is models of the energy system for, some, for East Africa and looking at, well, what technologies do we need to have in place to meet this serious, kind, like to meet the demand for energy at a net zero carbon uh, emissions? And how much is that going to cost, right? So it will tell us something about, this modeling effort will tell us something about the technologies that we need to have in place or, these not, or that these countries have to, to be able to deploy to meet their energy needs at, at a net zero carbon. And then it gives us a sense of how much is this going to cost. Do you have thoughts as it relates to looking at the big picture of the climate crisis, what the highest impact things are that could be put in place? And that, I mean, those could be policy things. Those could, those could be innovations that don't exist today. Those could be mindset shifts from consumers or, or something totally different. But I mean, if you could change one thing to most dramatically accelerate our trajectory towards getting to where we need to go, 
what would it be and, and why? Well, because of where I stand, we just need to invest in low-carbon technologies, in not just developing them, but deploying them, uh, and deploying them very rapidly. So invest in, does that mean public sector investment, private sector investment, innovation, policy? Well, I think it, it means all of them, but we need to build these systems now, right? We can't, and it means it's investing to build these systems. Uh, my concern is that we don't actually know what these systems are. Or how to make the math work at, at scale without doing things like pricing the externality in, in, in some way, which is another whole topic. Right. Now, I mean, I, like the, the people are working on other, there are other sources of emissions beyond besides energy, right? Agricultural and land use change. Those are also pretty critical. But from my point, we need to have these technologies in place. Like we need to have the technologies to a place where they can be deployed and then actually building these systems. I do think we have a good sense of, of what technology or like hang, low hanging fruit. There are some sectors systems that are going to be much harder to decarbonize. Like electricity, I think, decarbonizing electricity is hard, but it's probably the easiest in the energy sector. Like, how do we decarbonize like long distance haul uh, flight or flight, right? Aviation and shipping. Like for 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 airplanes, you need uh, for transatlantic flights, you're going to need a high-density, low-carbon fuel. And so what is that? And I think we are not as, as further, we're not, our knowledge about those technologies are not as, as advanced as they are for the power generation. And it's not that, it, like, for the power generation, I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard because we need to invest now very rapidly and build these systems now. But I think we have a good sense of technologies that are available. If power is where the fruit is the ripest, if you will, what's holding us back? Where are the biggest headwinds in terms of getting that transition done in power? These are massive investments, right? There's a, it's a, it requires a transformation. In the, in the Western world, it's a transformation, a complete transformation of the existing energy system. And in the developing world, it's building these new systems from scratch, and that requires massive investments, right? These are trillion-dollar investments. Do you have any thoughts in terms of how those investments should get funded? I do not have thoughts about how those things. That is, I think, that is where the engineer in, like, my engineering background doesn't help me with that. Yeah, no, I understand. And it's, I'm still trying to piece together not only the problem, but also which segments of the people working on it stop where in terms of their sweet spot and then how much collaboration is needed, how much collaboration is occurring, where there might be opportunities to build bridges and get people in the same room that might not necessarily be in the same room otherwise. Um, I don't have answers to these things, but these are the kinds of things I'm trying to piece together by talking to people with very wide range of backgrounds thinking about these problems. Yeah, and I think a really interesting person that you could have in your show might be like people that are looking at climate finance mechanisms. So there are like our business schools are producing really smart business people, right? MBAs, like I said, professor in engineering, I'm always complaining that we lose a lot of students that graduate from engineering degrees and then decide to go and get an MBA because there's just more money in, in the financial sector. So, but I, I assume, I imagine, I hope, I guess, that there are some of these very smart finance people are also trying to figure out the climate finance issues. And if they're not, I hope like maybe we need to think about how do we attract those really smart people's people to work on those problems. Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely, I mean, I'm not only talking to the people that are running the institutional funds, writing checks in innovation to understand if they're investing in climate innovation, what it would take for them to invest in climate innovation, but I'm talking to the limited partners that fund those 
entities, but also project finance and alternative financing vehicles and public-private partnerships. And it's a complicated landscape, one that I I don't claim to understand well at all, but it is one where I'm spending more and more time because I agree with you that I think it's not the only important thing. I mean, this is a systems problem, so there's lots of important areas, but but it is certainly one that that belongs on, on the short list. Just another fun question that I that I've been asking on a lot of these episodes is if if someone gave you a hundred billion dollars and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact in the climate fight, where would you put it, and how would you allocate it? Right now, I would I, I would allocate it in helping develop low carbon energy systems in the global south. These are countries that are much more resource limited that need to really grow their energy, as I said, really rapidly. But because they don't have a legacy infrastructure, that also gives us the opportunities from start from scratch with low carbon systems. And so at this point, I, like I, would, I would want to invest more in understanding what are the solutions to how, what kind of systems we can build in these, in these settings. What technologies do we need? How much are they going to cost? And then actually start building those systems. Uh, now, I do think there is. So I, I do think there is a, a reason that it's hard to fund my research is that it's very systems level, system level looking at what should we do. There's no shiny widget at the end. There's no shovel ready project at the end of my research. But I do worry that in some of these settings, we are putting a lot of money in building systems without really knowing how to do it or without really thinking through how to do it well. And we're not funding the research to really understand how to build these systems well. And so we're making investments in in infrastructure that may not actually be the best for the challenges to come, but that will lock us in, right? If we build a power plant coal power plant now, that power plant is going to be there 30 years from now, likely 40 years from now, right? If we build systems that are not integrated and like synergistics, like how do we integrate systems between right now, the way we've always designed system is like the power system is separate from the water system is separate from the food system, right? And there may be opportunities for designing these systems. So they're integrated and you like synergistic, right? And we don't know how to do that. But if we start building just these systems in silos, like we have been done, retrofitting in 30 years or more, it's going to be harder because this is how we've done it. There's like this locking. And so while I think we definitely need to make investments on building systems, I think we need to be smart about how to make these investments. And I think we need to, those investments need to be informed by research, like by robust research about at least no regret solutions. Like we don't know everything, but what are what are appropriate technologies that we think are at least less like least regret, right? The challenge though is that what you just said I think is exactly right. It makes a ton of sense, but it's also an excuse for the entrenched interest to stall. And we don't have the time. We need to proceed with urgency. And so how do you proceed with urgency in an intelligent, informed way when people are using the fact that we're not as intelligent enough, as informed enough as a reason to just keep doing the same things we've always done. Right. But we do know what are, we do have a sense of what are least regret pathways, right? We do know that there are certain technologies that we should be investing in certain that are not. I think the issue of integrating systems is, is not as well understood. And so we're just, we just build a power plant and then what, right? So, but it is a very complex system. You're like I'm, I'm, I'm getting depressed with this discussion right now. No, we can't end it there. We need to end it on a high note, which is that human ingenuity never ceases to amaze. And even when it looks like the chips are down, it's our fighting spirit that ultimately carries through. And there's been so much work that's been happening behind the scenes in so many different areas. And even though the dots haven't connected where they're not feeding each other yet, once they do, it happens very fast. And it looks like an overnight success story, but really it was many years and decades in the making. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather end there. I'd rather end on that note. Than, and it's, yeah. <laughs> and I, let, let's just be clear. It's not just innovation in the way engineers think about innovation. Right? We think of innovation as a better technology, nice, like shiny, better technology. 
but it's also innovation in delivery models, innovation in business models, innovation in policy, right? Innovation in consumer sentiment, innovation in in where certain issues stand in people's voting priorities, which then shows up in the demographic data, which then shows up in the political platforms that people run on and how they vote or how the you know what policies the politicians propose once they're in office so that they can keep getting elected, et cetera. Yeah. And so I, I as an engineer, obviously, I think technology has a role and there's a lot of potential for technology. But I think and that is something that I like about where I am at Carnegie Mellon University is that we are a truly interdisciplinary place. So I work, most of my students are co-advised and most of my students, I have, like, I work with engineers, I work with decision scientists, uh, because these, these other systems that are not physical technology systems are just as important. Um, and so as an engineer, I see a role for technology, obviously, but we also need to keep in mind these other stakeholders that are part of the system and that are very influential in the system. Right? You can design, you can design. I actually had a discussion these once in a review panel years ago where someone was talking about what we need is just to optimize the location of charging infrastructure for electric vehicles based on like some objective function that it was a very, very engineer-driven objective function. And I kept saying, you can optimize based on that, but if people don't like your optimization, it doesn't, they're just going to do whatever is better for them, right? And you may have wasted all of these resources because you optimize based on this very engineered, engineering mindset constrained by engineer and like physical constraints and never consider the consumers. We need to bring in, like as we're designing the system, we also need to understand these consumers. And so I think that, and for example, one of the challenges that some of the, the utilities in, in East Africa have faced is everyone has always assumed you build the electricity system, people will use the electricity, right? You build it, they will come. It turns out that some of these utilities have seen that they've built the capacity for electricity, they've connected more people, and demand hasn't grown. And so why hasn't demand grown? And if if you provide electricity but people don't use electricity, then the benefits we expect from electrification are not gonna happen because people are not using it, right? So electricity provides benefits, but only, it's not just if it's delivered, it's also if, if it's used for useful purposes, right? And we're not, in some contexts, we're not seeing growth in demand for electricity. And it's not clear why. Is it that people can't afford the electricity? Is it that people can't afford the appliances they need to be able to use the electricity? And those have two different solutions, right? Is it that they get, like people think, oh, I get electricity, I'm gonna get light bulbs and a TV, and they don't think about other things they could be using that electricity for because they've never had electricity. They don't have the context to really think beyond like those things that are just clear, like everything, TV and lighting, right? And so we need to understand those things as much as we need to understand the technologies. Anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words that you'd like to leave with our listeners? So I was saying I was um, getting depressed with the discussion and, and I, sometimes I you get the question of whether I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm optimistic about the outcomes. And at this point, I think it's, I have no choice. I have to remain optimistic. I have two kids, nine and 11. So I have to believe, and I work on this problem every day. I have to believe that something will come out of this work and that we will do something. I think we're already committed to pain as a result like we're already going to be suffering. I mean, we're already seeing the impacts of climate change and people are already suffering. I have to be optimistic that we will do something before it's just awful or more awful. I just, at this point, I don't have a choice but to be optimistic. I think that's right. I mean, people ask ask me the same and I'm much newer to 
to this work than you. And I'm, I mean, if you can even call what I'm doing work, but yeah, people ask, well, isn't it too late? And it's like, one, no, there's a lot we can do. And, and two, yeah, it's hard, but it's hard, but there's a lot that's under our control and it might be a steep hill and getting steeper by the day, but we don't have a choice. So there's a lot unknown as well, but I'm not going to look back and feel like there's anything more I could have done. I'm going to do everything I can while I'm here. And that's the best I can do. And then no matter what happens, I'll know I did everything I could. And that's all you can do control what you can control and so but if you're not controlling what you can control and you're freaked out by it and you look in the mirror every night and you worry about it and you don't do anything about it then shame on you yeah and and, and it's i don't want to judge but at the same time you know people need to be responsible for their own actions and if they know it's there and they're consciously aware and they're con and they're consciously like completely freaked out by it and worried about the future and not changing anything or taking any emotions to do anything about it then at least for me personally, I, could, I couldn't live with that choice for myself. And each person needs to decide that for themselves, though. Okay, Paulina, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing. And I'm excited for people to, to hear this one. It, it might not be the, the most uplifting of all the episodes we've done, but I, I think it's an important perspective to hear. And at least for me, when we talk about the grim realities, it doesn't make me depressed. It makes me motivated. Um, so, so hopefully, hopefully that's the message that gets instilled in each listener as well. Okay, I'm glad. Okay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.